So we are still in the book of Acts as a church and today we arrive in Acts chapter 17. Oh yeah, brilliant. Cheers. Yeah, yeah. He done a good job just strolling along. That was lovely. So, um, Acts chapter 17. That's better, right? Is that going to stop all the... Whatever that sound is. Maybe. We'll see. Acts chapter 17. Um, Acts chapter 17. If you don't have a copy um, of the Bible, we will display some of the um, Bible passages on this screen. And I... Yeah, it's kind of clear. It's kind of clear. Um, I'm going to read. And then we will get right into our study for today. Acts chapter 17, we're going to be looking at verses 16 um, to 34. 16 to 34 of Acts 17. <laughs> After I give up. <laughs> this thing is so annoying. <laughs> All right. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscriptions to the unknown God what therefore you worship as unknown this I proclaim to you the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think 
that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus and Aria Pegite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. All right, it's the reading of God's word. Let's pray and let's get stuck in, shall we? All right, God, thank you so much again for allowing us to be here. Sometimes we take these gatherings for granted, um, but it's a gift from you to us to be able to gather in this way and our gathering should be all about you and so god i pray as we've done our best to sing of your goodness um it's reminded of one of the songs lord there is nothing nothing better than you and so god as we explore these scriptures that clearly talk about who you are and what you've done i pray that we would surely leave here um, saying that God there is nothing better than you um, may our time here just whet our appetites for more of you in Jesus' name we pray amen um, our culture is becoming more and more post-Christian in fact many will argue that we are living in a post-Christian age. If you're wondering what post-Christianity actually means, let me help you understand it better with this definition from Wikipedia. Wikipedia defines post-Christianity as um, the situation in which Christianity is no longer the dominant civil religion of a society, but has gradually assumed values, culture, and worldviews that are not necessarily Christian. Put simply, a post-Christian culture is a culture where the Christian faith and worldview no longer has a dominant influence on society. While the church is far from dying, most agree the Christian faith has lost its influence in the cities we live in, especially a city like San Diego. Um, I'm originally from London, and they say that Europe is 10 years ahead when it comes to being secular. What that means is Europe is post-Christian and it's been that way 
for many many years America um, is kind of catching up to that and so how should we respond to all of this how should we respond to the truth that our city is becoming more and more post-Christian um, should we isolate ourselves should we complain about how bad things are getting should we aim to move um, outside of California to more Christian parts of our nation what should we do we shouldn't do none of them but what we should do is obvious we should continue to be on mission with Jesus in this post-Christian culture as a church family on mission with Jesus, the question we have to ask is, all right, if we're meant to be on mission, if we're meant to continue to engage with this post-Christian culture, how are we meant to do it? How do we speak to and reach a culture that's post-Christian? Thankfully, God's word provides us with answers. Um, Paul's time in Athens, which is um, one of the most awesome stories in the New Testament, provides us with helps on how to live and be and engage in this secular context we find ourselves in. Because Paul's time in Athens um, and what Paul sees and what he feels and what he does will help us effectively, effectively engage our very own culture um, because if we look at what Athens was like, which we're going to be doing, Athens was way, it was pre-Christian. There was no form or idea of Christianity there. And because we're post-Christian, we're kind of getting there, this story is incredibly helpful to us. And so this morning we'll look at how Paul's experience in the ancient city of Athens will help us effectively engage with our modern post-Christian culture. And so first, we can effectively engage with our post-Christian culture when we are deeply disturbed by false gods, when we are deeply disturbed by false gods or false idols. And so it's the year 51 AD, and the Apostle Paul is all alone in the ancient city of Athens. A few days ago, um, he was about 150 miles north in the city of Berea, and what he was doing there was preaching the gospel, and thankfully, he was encouraged to see people respond to the gospel, but persecution in Berea came his way, and he was forced to flee to Athens and leave behind his most trusted team members, Timothy and Silas. And so Paul is in Athens. Athens, named after the Greek goddess Athena, was at that time the ancient capital of the Greek world. But it was better known as the intellectual capital of the world. It was like if Oxford, Cambridge, um, Yale, were rolled into one. It was a highly um, philosophical and intellectual um, city. And so 
after being dropped off in Athens to escape persecution, the Apostle Paul is alone in this great city and he's counting down the days until he reunites with Timothy and Silas. Look at verse 16 again. It says, Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. A Roman official serving under Emperor Nero in first century AD said of Athens, truly our neighborhood is so well stocked with deities, you'll easier meet with a God than a man. In other words, it was easier to find a God in Athens than a human being. Athens was filled with idols in the same way Las Vegas is filled with casinos. There were cult statues and altars and shrines everywhere you went. Idols were so common, virtually every block and every street had some sort of connection with some god, goddess or spiritual demon. And the Athenians may have been enamored with idols, but Paul felt differently. His reaction to the idols is described in this way. If you read verse 16 again, what does it say? It says, his spirit was provoked within him. The verb provoked may be understood in terms of someone becoming irritated or angry, but here in this sentence, it has a slightly different meaning. Um, Eckhard Schnabel, who's an awesome scholar, says this, Paul's spirit may not have been simply stimulated by the emotion of anger and of grief, but also by a desire to convert them. And so Paul is provoked in a way that makes him want to see the Athenians stop living for counterfeit gods and start living for the one true God of the Bible. He is consumed with a desire to see them saved. What have we discovered so far? Athens was a city obsessed with idols, with false gods. And the truth is, our very own city of San Diego is filled with idols as well. Like Athens, idols are everywhere in San Diego. Um, some of you, I'm sure, right now are like, wait a minute, wait, what? Like Obed? Like, I don't see statues and shrines and all of that everywhere. I don't know. What are you talking about? San Diego is full of idols. Idols? come in all shapes and sizes. San Diego may not be filled with idols as in physical structures, but it's filled with idols as in, listen carefully, things that take the place of the one true God in people's lives. Tim Keller helps us here when it comes to defining idols in our times and in our nation. An idol 
is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. G.K. Chesterton says this, for when we cease or stop to worship God, we do not worship nothing. We worship anything. Someone once said, an idol can be defined as a good thing. If a good thing becomes a God thing, it's an idol. In view of these definitions, I'm sure you can now begin to see that modern day San Diegans are as idolatrous as first century Athenians. When people are more in awe of creation rather than the creator God, what's happening there is that they're engaged in idol worship. When a person's life revolves around keeping fit, keeping in shape, experiencing life to the fullest, they're devoted to some sort of idol worship. Career, entertainment, food, a nice home, kids, your political preference could become an idol. An idol is anything we elevate and worship above God in our hearts and for this reason, the worship of idols, I would say, is an epidemic in our culture. And so when Paul became aware of the rampant idolatry in Athens, it says his spirit was provoked within him. Like Paul in Athens, the question we all have to grapple with is, are we provoked by the countless idols in our city? Does it make you uncomfortable when you see created things being offered the sacrifices and devotion God deserves? Are you troubled by the reality that there are thousands of people in our city who are ignorant of the one true God and because of that reason they have chosen to live and dedicate their lives to things that have become gods in their life? Like Paul in Athens, may we be provoked in a way that makes us want to see people stop living for counterfeit gods and start living for the one true God of the Bible. And so we've seen the first way we can be effective in reaching our post-Christian context is when we are aware of but also disturbed by the countless idols in our city. The second way we can be effective in reaching our post-Christian culture is by being present when, where people come together. Being present where people come together. And so, Paul is provoked by the idols in the city of Athens. What happens next? What does he do? Look at verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day 
with those who happen to be there. In the past, whenever Paul, as we've been in Acts, you've noticed this, whenever Paul arrived in a new city, what would he do? What would he do? Yeah, he would attend a service at the local synagogue so that he can communicate the gospel to Jews, his people. Here in Athens, he does the same thing. Okay, he goes to the synagogue, but he also, if you notice, he spends time in the marketplace. And he spends time there because he realized that is where most Athenians gathered, not just to shop for groceries, but to share ideas. And so every day in Athens, you would find Paul in the synagogue, probably in the morning, okay? And then in the afternoon, he will head to the marketplace and he would interact with the locals and, and show them how Jesus is the one true God and the center of all things. And so the question we have to stop and ask is, where is your marketplace? To effectively reach our secular culture, we have to intentionally be present where people come together. Because this is what's happening, guys. Most people will not attend a church service. It's not like 20, 10, 10 or 20 or 30 years ago where most people would regularly attend church service and if they didn't, they had some sort of background in the church and they would suddenly show up. Things are changing. Most people wouldn't come to a church service. And so what we have to start thinking about is where are people? Where do people come together? And it's in those contexts that we have to look to get into those contexts so that we can bring the gospel to them. For me, where I hang out is, is local coffee shops or parks or um, fitness centers or school events for our kids or soccer games. These are the places I know I will come in contact with people that need to hear the good news of the gospel. I remember when our church first started and we were exploring the idea um, of having a church office. We were looking at our budget and saying, man, should we factor in a church office? And we came to the conclusion that now man if we have a church office it's going to isolate us and so what did we do we were like man we're gonna start doing a lot of our meetings okay in coffee shops in local coffee shops and I spent a lot of time in coffee shops I don't drink coffee I drink tea thankfully they have lots of good okay tea the tea's all right okay you need to have pg tips why don't American coffee shops have PG tips. So you don't know what I'm talking about. Luke does and all the Brits. PG tips is the best tea. Anyway, I'm just, no, anyway, I've got a scatterbrain. Back to what I was saying. Coffee shops were a key part of how we not only engaged, but came in contact with many people um, in this um, neighborhood. And so where is your marketplace? Where can you meet people? We have to accept the fact that many people will not come to our church services on a Sunday. We have to go to them. 
where can you go to connect with people that desperately need Jesus? John Stott, who's a British pastor, he was awesome. He says this, there is a need for gifted evangelists who can make friends and gossip the gospel in such informal settings as these. Isn't that awesome? Oh, only a Brit can say that. Gossip the gospel. After a whole year of lockdown, what's beginning to really happen, you've probably noticed, is that people are desperate for community. But most importantly, I would argue that more and more people are exploring the meaning of life. They're exploring what they call spirituality. And so as we enter into the red tier, and I think things maybe, hopefully, are going to be improving and things are going to get back to normal, may we, as a church, as individuals, identify where people meet, and may we be visibly present in those contexts so that we can have conversations centered on the gospel. So far, we've seen that we can effectively reach our post-Christian culture when we are disturbed by idolatry and by being present where people come together. Lastly, we effectively reach our post-Christian culture by being eager to share the gospel by being eager to share the gospel. And so, as Paul spends time sharing the gospel where people come together, it's not long before he catches the attention of the great philosophical schools in Athens, the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers. And so after, so they see Paul, they hear about Paul, they go and investigate, and they're like who is this guy what is he talking about they engage in conversation with him okay and after just talking to paul and hearing his arguments about the gospel they're just not impressed with him they're not how do we know that look at verse 18 it said some of the epicurean and stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said what does this babbler wish to say Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Notice they refer to Paul as a babbler. Just to let you guys know, that is far from a compliment. Okay? It's actually a derogatory remark intended to mock him. Okay? By calling him a babbler, they're basically saying this guy doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. And whatever he's saying about this Jesus and the resurrection is a lot of nonsense. And so, not knowing what to do with this babbler, the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers decide the next best step is for him to go before the Areopagus. Areopagus is translated the Hill of Eris, but you're probably more familiar with its Roman name, Mars Hill. During the classical period, it was a place used 
as a judicial court to judge major crimes. But when Paul was in Athens, the Areopagus had become a popular gathering place where philosophers, scholars, and former officials met to discuss and debate important ideas. Basically, the Areopagus used to be a courtroom, but when Paul was there, it had, it had become a venue for TED Talks, okay? When Paul arrives there, the leaders of the city ask him to clarify what his teaching is all about. Look at verse 19 and 20. They say, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, to know, therefore, what these things mean. And so, this is what's happening. Paul is standing before what one author describes as the most exclusive philosophical review board in the world. And he's been asked to explain the gospel, his teaching. What happens next? What does he say? Look at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. That's so interesting. Paul begins his speech with a compliment, affirming their religiosity. Um, the Greek word for religious here basically means someone. Uh, it basically means someone who is spiritually minded. Arkent Huge says this. Paul was undoubtedly eager to protest their idolatry and point them to the truth, but he restrained himself and gave a genuine compliment first. What happens next? Paul then establishes common ground um, with what he says. With what he says next, look at the first part of verse twenty-three. It says, "For Paul says, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God." In other words, Paul's like, since I arrived in your city, I've noticed there are a lot of idols. But one in particular stood out to me. It was the altar dedicated to the unknown God. Then what he says next definitely would have made them lean forward in their chairs. Look at um, the last part of verse 23. He says, What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. <laughs> in other words, you may not know who this God is, this unknown God, but I do, and I want to tell him, and I want to tell you about him. And so from verse 24, Paul begins to unveil to them the identity of the God they haven't known. He says, he goes on to say, he, he's the God who created all things. And because of this, he does not live in temples made by man. What does that mean? It basically means this God right it's not confined to a specific location he's everywhere and because he made everything he goes on to say and um, because he's everywhere he's not served by human hands as though he needed anything in verses 
In verses 26 to 27, Paul talks about how the God they failed to worship established all nations and the reason he established the nations was so that people may seek him and experience him forever. He then even quotes a couple of their own like famous poets in and he does this in order to maintain rapport and keep their interest if you look at um, the first and last parts of verse 28 they are quotes from um, two of their most celebrated philosophers and Paul says it he says it in there he says even your own poets have said this look at verse 29 Paul continues being then God's offspring we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone an image formed by the art and imagination of man in other words he said a lot there but let me simplify it for him he's saying if we're if we're all made by god then it doesn't make sense for us to assume that he's like gold or silver or stone or any image formed by the art and imagination of man put simply the creator of all things cannot be recreated by his creation. Created things should not try to recreate the very being that created them. Paul then concludes his speech by urging them to stop worshipping the counterfeit gods and start worshipping the one true God because he deserves it. Not only that, look at verse 31. Because he, God, has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The point of Paul's speech in summary if we can summarize it is this if man places anything above god as the object of their time thought energy or life they are worshiping the work of their hands and are degrading god and themselves therefore the gods They've been worshipping our counterfeits and the God who created all things is the one true God they should dedicate their life to. And Paul's message wasn't just for the Athenians 2,000 years ago. Paul's message is for us. If we place anything above God as the object of our time, our energy or life, we are worshipping the work we are worshipping the work of our hands and so therefore are degrading God and ourselves. And the only way we're able to worship, come in contact with, and experience the God of all creation, the God who holds the whole world in his hands, 
the God who sustains everything, the God who is alive and well, the only way we can begin to have a legit relationship with him is by being born again through belief in his son Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life died on the cross and rose again Paul's speech in the Areopagus had three results mockery, delay and belief many mocked him some said we will hear you again about this and despite all of these negative reactions Paul was encouraged to find out that several men and women joined him and believed verse 31 lets us know there may have been many different reactions but the most important thing to remember is that in Athens 5180 the gospel was proclaimed and that is the lesson we need to hear the most to effectively engage our post-christian culture we must be eager to share the gospel so the question is i wonder if sharing the gospel is a part of your life how are you doing with it all i wonder if you're spending enough time where people come together so that you can communicate the gospel in a way they can understand we must be eager to share the gospel I can imagine some of you are at this point are thinking but, but, but Obed <laughs> I'm not the Apostle Paul I'm not like you and all the other Christian leaders who have actually studied how to engage our post-Christian culture with the gospel I'm just me okay I'm just me I'm not like you guys I have a degree in business but I don't have a degree in apologetics I'm an expert in helping people manage their finances but there's no way I'll be able to help the new age yoga mystic understand that God is not the universe but he is the creator of the universe I may be qualified to diagnose health issues all right I'm doing a residency I'm a nurse I'm doing I'm in the medical field I can do that but I'm not I'm just not good at explaining the gospel to skeptics who didn't grow up in the church or have walked away from the church I am a mom trying to raise kids and I am super busy I just don't know how to reach people who doubt the existence of God I can fly Navy aircrafts but I'm just not an expert engaging people who spend their time reading and listening to content 
by the Richard Dawkins and Thomas Friedmans of this world. Obed, I know I need to be eager to share the gospel, but I suck at it. I'm just not good at it. Let me just say, those are fair excuses. But I also have to be honest, because I love you, that they're just not good enough. All right, why do I say this? Listen, there are, all right, thousands of people in our city who are seeking to find meaning and purpose in counterfeit false gods, okay? They are seeking to find in created things what God alone can give them. They are lost and have no hope for the future. And so, if you're aware of their deception and truly care about their eternal destiny, why are you not figuring out a way to communicate the gospel to them? Okay? This is a really helpful illustration I got from a pastor named J.D. Guerrero. He says, it's, it goes a little something like this. Look, I don't know how to do sign language. I don't. And the reason is, um, it's not because it's hard. It is hard, okay? But the reason I don't know sign language is because there's no one in my immediate family who is hearing impaired. There's no one that I've wanted to communicate with so badly that it motivated me to learn sign language. The truth is, I guarantee, if someone in my family, one of my kids or someone, became hearing impaired, this is what I would do. I would be motivated. I would work hard to learn sign language so I can communicate with them. Do you care about the salvation of the people you love? If you truly care, then you'll give your time and energy to learning how to better explain the gospel to them. You'll read books, you'll listen to podcasts, you'll watch YouTube videos, you'll take classes, you'll do whatever it takes to be able to effectively communicate the gospel to them. And that's the truth. If we really believe the gospel, if we really believe it's good news, if we really believe that the, that the spreading of the gospel is not the responsibility of just church leaders, but we all have a responsibility to engage our post-Christian culture, if we really believe that, we will give our time and energy to learning how to share the gospel. King's Cross Church, our city, our nation, and our world is becoming more and more post-Christian. Like the Apostle Paul in Athens thousands of years ago, may we engage 
with our culture by being deeply disturbed by the idols people worship, seeking to be present where people come together, and by being eager to educate ourselves and learn the gospel and how to share it so that we may effectively do so. Let's pray. God of all creation, you are amazing. You just are. Thank you for reminding us of some of these truths. I pray that you would truly help us as we observe and as we live our lives and see um, the brokenness um, in our city, the um, obsession people have, and we all have at times with um, things that are good, but we make them God things when we um, seek to find meaning and purpose in them. God, I pray that as we observe all of those things uh, in our culture and in our lives, God, I pray that we would be troubled. May we not be numb to the idolatry that is around us and in us. God, I also pray that you would help us know where we can gather with people more and when we do God I pray that you would help us be able to engage and share the gospel God I pray that we, we would devour your word to understand who you are so that we can tell people about who you are and what you've done for them God I pray you've provided us with so much you've provided us with so much content and um, things that can help us and to help us reach people and so God I pray that you would help us carve out time in our schedule so that we can not only learn how to share the gospel but pray for people that need the gospel thank you God do what you can only do and that is to inspire us to love you more and seek to make disciples of you and your son. In his name we pray. Amen.